Nice to see a few familiar faces. Some of you seem to be making a bit of a regular attendance to the, the guest speakers. It's been great having our graduates come in every two or three weeks for the last couple of terms. And today, we've got Mike Heary. Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming. So, Mike, when were you part of TLC? I was um, in the Erskine campus in 98. For the year of 98, pretty much, into 99. It's a wee while back. Yeah, what's that, 13, 14 years? Yeah. And what was happening before TLC? Did, you, did it find you, or did you find TLC? Um, you know, it found me by accident in the back of the newspaper. And the little ad with the bird, you know, thing came up. And I'd just come back from overseas um, after 10 years. Um, and I was really at a loose end, you know, I wanted a... I was looking for a job, mm. and I really hated my job that I was doing, engineering and welding, and I was over it. I'd been around the world doing it, and I'd just, you know. So there it was, come to the open, come to the open night. So you came to the preview? On a, on a Thursday night, so I went down to Island Bay, because I was only living in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. And um, rocked in, and everyone was there, and we... And that was it, and I think about two weeks later I was there. And who, who was hosting the preview that night? I think it was Mr Milne here, wasn't it? As far as I recall, I'm not sure. Can't recall. Did you used to do... Nobody else did it at that time. You did that, <laughs> didn't you? That's right. Yeah. And what intrigued you about TLC at the time, maybe with the preview or with the ads? Well, you know, for years, I mean, I'd wanted to... Um, I'd always wanted to go to art school. Mm. Um... But of course, coming from, you know, as when I was younger, it was just not really on the radar for me mm. at school. What was that? Um, you know, I suppose I'd be, I'd, as a, you know, when I was growing up, I was a compulsive drawer, you know, and I would scribble and draw and uh, I. And I never knew why I did that, you know. Oh, we don't do it, we just do it. I mean, we're like that, and, you know, hours go by, you're scribbling away, blah, 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 blah. Um, uh, you know, I never got a lot of encouragement to do it. Mm. In fact, if anything, I was put off it. You know, my father was very anti. He was like, you know, they used to say to me, what are you going to do when you grow up, Michael? Oh, well, I'd always tell them, I'm going to be an artist. And it would be, oh, no, dismay. <laughs> you know, where's that going to get you? Sort of thing. Um, so, you know, it didn't... Oh, I was OK at school. School was all right, but, you know, I was too big for it and I just had to get out and I wanted to make money. So when I left school, you know, studying... Because it was very different in those days. It was a quota system for schools. You know, they would only educate as many people as the industry apparently required. So, you know, to get into design school, Wellington Tech, I, I did apply, um, but the, it was very strict, you know, it was really tough to get in. Mm. They would only accept 30 or whatever a year, and um, so I flagged it. I just wanted to get out in the world and make money and go and have my life, you know, which is what I did. What was the time at TLC like? Um, 
well, let's come back to that because it really changed my life. You know, the whole the whole thing. What what had happened was that uh, this whole this whole journey of me leaving school. I ended up getting a job at Air New Zealand loading bags, um, and just worked there for a couple of years. And after two years, I was eligible for these cheap staff flights. You know, so Wellington in those days was quite a grim place. You know, this is eighties I'm talking mid-80s. It didn't have a hell of a lot going for it, really. It was So I couldn't wait to get out of it. I was just gone. I got on that plane and boom, I was in the UK, you know. I was just gone. Um, and then that didn't really work out for me because I was... I, I, I just landed there with no idea what I'm doing, what the hell's going on. But um, luckily I had people in Ireland, you know, I had aunts and I had a lot of family there. So I just bailed out and went over there and, and I was quite enjoying it. And just randomly one day I'm at the bar and I'd gotten quite friendly with this barman, you know, chatting away. And I'd been there for a month and he was, well, well what are you doing? Are you going to stay around or what's going on? Um, I said, oh, I'd better look for a job. What do you do? I said, oh, well, I like drawing pictures. <laughs> and he says, um, he says, oh, well, my, my, um, my girlfriend does that. Yeah, she works for this cartoon place. You know, and um, uh, two days later, I was in the offices of Murakami Wolf in Dublin doing line tests for this animation company. And that was it. And then the next day, I was there colouring and cell painting on um, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> and amazing. I mean, you couldn't have written it better. You know, for a, for a compulsive drawer just to go off randomly like that to the other side of the world. And oh, what a fairy tale, eh? Yeah. Land on your feet. And so I did that for nearly five years over there. Uh, you know, amazing uh, thing. Um, but, you know, in that, in that whole five years that I worked in the industry of, you know, in that animation, do you know I hadn't created really one original artwork in that whole time? And, and, I, and I, I did, I lost it. The essence of that creativity that I'd had always my whole life that, uh, that had compelled me just to draw frantically and scribble and scribble and scribble and not ask questions why or how or where it was going or who's going to buy it or any of this nonsense. Um, it was just, uh, and it was gone. And, I, and sadly, I never really got it back, you know. Um, anyway, the computer came into animation and we were all unemployed. When um, was this, Mike? This was Roughly. Um, about 93, 94. The computers first started coming in um, to do the very menial work of like the colouring in and stuff like that. So I survived a little bit longer because by this stage of the game I'd gone up a little bit and I was in the editing and I'd done a bit of animation and stuff. Um, but the studio eventually folded. They had tax breaks going on, similar to what they have here now for the movies. Um, so the tax breaks had ended, so straight away the, the companies just shot through. They were gone. It wasn't, didn't work out for them anymore, so they were out. Um, and I began to realise that you know, I was, I was pretty limited in the world with what I could do now because I was 25 
all I'd done all my life was draw pictures, you know, and that, I'd lived the dream and it hadn't really worked out for me, you know. So I was beaten and, um, and I went back to what my dad kept telling me, get a trade, get a trade, you've got to have this, you know, straight, narrow, go to work in a factory, and that's what ended up happening to me. And was it over there, or was it Yeah, that was there. There's luckily an island that's all the education. They've got these huge polytechs that are free. You can just go and... So I got into a bit of welding and steel work and engineering, purely for the reason that I wanted to travel. And I thought, and you know, I knew that that was a good sort of skill to pick up that would enable me to get round and get work and get by. Um, and there ensues the next sort of more or less seven or eight years of my life, going around steel shops, building sites, factories, grim, really horrible, and no, no artwork getting done at all. That is just, you know, it was gone. So I was in a real limbo state, you know. Um, and then I, I came back to Wellington, um, and I, I suppose I'd just, back home, it was such a change for me to be back. Um, and then, yeah, like I say, just coincidentally came across, I was in the job pages, mm. and I come across, here's the ad for art school. I thought, oh, well, let's try that little dream again, you know. But I mean, I'd had no exposure to artists my whole life. It just wasn't, you know, I mean, I was an old bogan metler from, you know, sort of half punk rock, half metal from Wellington. This art. It kind of wasn't on the scene. And of course it was a very different environment, you know, in New Zealand in those days was, we didn't exactly celebrate New Zealand culture so much, you know, the music, we were, it wasn't like it is now. Mm, compared to the 2000s where oh, amazing. New Zealand I mean, music and just and amazing what it's, how it's come, come along yeah. and how we've got a real value of ourselves now culturally, whereas, you know, we really didn't. It was almost the other way around in those days. If it was made here, you'd kind of instantly poo it and go, oh, it must be rubbish, you know? Interesting but, turnaround. Well, yeah, yeah, incredible. And, but I can remember, like, the first, you know, say, with the radio with pictures come on in the 80s with Karen Hay, and it would be, you know, the Clean or some flying numb band, especially, like, the Clean came on. I remember seeing that and thinking, that was the first Kiwi music that we'd ever really seen on TV. It was really amazing. So that was sort of starting, I suppose. Sure. Yeah. And had you done any kind of sculpting work coming up to TLC, or would it be mostly just the drawing that you've been referring to? Um, well, no, even, well, really, the drawing. I mean, I still tutored, but I never got back to... After my time in the animation and after my sell-out with Hollywood, hmm. um, I, I, I never went back to that place that I'd had all my life that, you know, um, where, where I was just doing it just for the love of it, you know. I had played with a few, um, if anything I'd made, I'd designed stuff I suppose you'd call it, you wouldn't call it sculpture so much as, you know, I'd tried to be a bit creative with the odd bit of furniture or things like that, semi kind of jewellery, you know. Maybe. Um, but sculpture, no, again, I'd had no idea about the third dimension. I didn't, you know, 
<laughs> no, nothing to do with it. And um, what was really amazing was then making that discovery when I'd come with Dennis and that was, because funnily enough, Dennis was my, I didn't know any of this at the time, but Dennis was my um, uh, college geography teacher. <laughs> <laughs> And so, and, you know, and then I'd landed, and I had no idea he was, whatever. And, um, and I must have made an impression on him, or maybe I was a bit, I must have been a bit naughty in class. <laughs> and um, so when I first walked into the sculpture room, he's just looked at me and said, bloody hell, Michael here, you're back. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd, yeah, so it was interesting. We'd both sort of gone on, and there we were. And, but what a discovery. Yeah, tell you us know, about just the, the first week oh, or two just on awesome. campus. Yeah, awesome. Like, just, and with the, with the people. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I'd come from a very heavy industrial world with, you know, you probably see that in some of these machine things there, but... Um, and you were on site for how long, Mike? In Erskine. Yeah. I didn't do my whole year. You still owe me like six weeks. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I got my certificate, thanks. Um, <laughs> but you see, what happened there was that um, the sculpture has really taken over then once I, and much to the dismay of anyone who tried to give me a paintbrush or any of the above, because I was just not there. I'd just be in that. I just wanted the rock, mm. the stone made, I just really got into it, and um, uh, just amazing, in the 3D. What was your first piece? What materials were you working with? Well, it was Omaru stone, of course, naturally, just chipping away. My first piece was an earlier reincarnation of... Actually, the first piece was interesting, because it came from... We'd do these life drawing, which was one thing that I did love was the life drawing classes and these uh, quick 10, 15, you know, how you go, 10 second <laughs> quick ones, you know. So we, there was a model there with one of these balls, you know, exercise ball things. And she's over it, rolling around, whatever, she's got it, right. So I've done that and then I had tried to, whatever, I just, so I had my sketchbook there and um, I was out the back, was, I just spent a lot of my time out at the back on the couch smoking cigarettes and talking to girls, um, <laughs> as you do. So um, the, my phone goes, I'm on the phone. And I had this drawing in the book of the model with the exercise ball. And I'm chatting away, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just doodling, doodle, doodle, you know. Mm. And so I'm doing the ball, going round and round and round. Then I'm doing her body, like do do do, and it just appeared. There it was, and I'd since remade it in a hard. How do I get to that? Oh, you keep on skipping yeah, through. we'll find it. Yeah, I'd, find it there it is. I'd, I'd originally did it, and um, there's the ball. You get the side one. So that was kind of it. You know, it was her body, and it was... So I'd just, like, just done random series of... I don't even know where it came from, and then that, it was there. 
Excellent. So that was it. So I made it. And the first one was an Omaru stone. But I love that. I just love that form so much. And, you know, I had to redo it in an andesite that you see there, the Taranaki. So then you're immersed with many different mediums. Well, so then, your, thankfully, your, your, your... well, then, th- you know, th- through that with Dennis, uh, at the time they were running the symposium in the Frankfurt's Park, and, you know, me as an absolute novice and beginner, and I was like, oh, I'd love to have a go at that. I'd previously, had I seen one already? I can't recall now, but, um, oh, yeah, I really wanted to be in on it. Dennis had said to me, well, we're looking for a night watchman. Uh, someone to do security on the site. You know, we'll pay you $2.50 an hour or something. <laughs> yep, I'm in, I'm in. <laughs> I'll do it. So, um, just to get there and, learn, and see everyone, you know, there's 40 artists from all around the world knocking stuff up. You know, life-changing experience to see these Japanese and all these European guys, and of course the, how many, you know, clever Kiwis that we've got there doing it. Um, and there's no, especially for the things like the hard stone, well definitely at that point in time, there's, there was no, there's nowhere to go to learn it. You're learning on the park with the artists. A, so it was a real education for me. Yeah. At that point, um, you know, I was sold then sculptures. The, that's me. I'm a sculptor now. I'm a sculptor, and it had given me back what I'd lost previously from, you know, with the animation and my whole thing of the drawing. Um, I'd rediscovered that again with the 3D, and I was I was back in the drawings again, but this time I was drawing what I was going to be sculpting. You know, I was drawing sculptures nonstop. So it was really exciting. It was like, you know, I was back on again. Um, then Hollywood comes around again. The old demon resurfaces because here we are in the park carving the rocks and these jokers come around, oh, we're, we're making Lord of the Rings and we need all the carvers we can get. And we're like, oh, yeah, right, eh, mate, Jack. So we put our names down, you know, <laughs> whatever. Just we wrote the names and um, yep, sure enough, within what two or three months, we were there doing it. Hence, leaving school early. You know, I'd had to leave a couple of months earlier out of the year to bail out to do that. Um, and you know, that was good for us for a start. Grey was quite, you know, early early days at Stone Street. Um, but the whole time then, I was very aware of this past experience that I'd had with Hollywood coming calling. And I, I was thinking to myself, always in the back of my head, you buggers, you're going to get it again, aren't you? You know, it's like they'd already got my drawing the first time around. Now they were after my sculpture as well. <laughs> you know, and they were going to, and I knew what would happen. I knew exactly that this was going to happen, that your creativity that you think is this eternal wellspring, you know, but it isn't. It's, you, you've got to nourish it, and it's something that if you, if you, if you thrash it or you don't look after it, you, it's going to wither up on you, you know. You, you, that's my experience anyway, mm. that you, you'll lose it. 
Um, and so it's, in very black and white terms in those days, I used to call it a sellout. You know, I'm more philosophical about it now, but um, that was the essence of it. And I was very unhappy there carving in the movies. I was miserable. And although you'd think, oh my God, what a great, you know, what a great opportunity. But the whole thing of just being the robot, doing what you're told, so against the grain of, you know, you understand that, um, that I bailed out and I, I just jumped ship. Even I'd done a year or just over a year and a bit. But I bailed and um, went into a, a big sort of six or seven year stretch of just putting my head straight into hard stone and sculpting which was, you know, really amazing because all my competition were tied up in the movies, so. <laughs> <laughs> all the best carvers of my generation are busy working for Jackson, so I'm out scooping it. You know. <laughs> Good timing. And, um, you know, sure, I didn't get rich, but I maintained myself, which is a success, I think. And Definitely. And that I got to... Um, Certainly learn a lot. Oh, what are we up to now? Logged into personal files. Oh, a bit of Steadman. <laughs> and what was it like during that several years with uh, sustaining your practice, Mike? Um, it was a real learning curve. I mean, in the in the essence of the business of art, you know which is something that we're probably none of us really cut out to do. We're artists, you know, and uh, we'll start that again. Nice. There's a little uh, slideshow button down the bottom there. So, yeah, you know, uh, above and beyond actually having to learn how to deal with these types of stones, which are incredibly tough things, mm. um, there's all kinds of logistics on top of it, moving them... Often with scale, if you want to do things at scale, which I like, you're out of the realm of the everyday gallery. You know, you know, the stuff just won't fit in the door half mm. of it, mm. and upstairs and stuff. So you've really got to start thinking of how to get it out there. And these symposiums, of course, are great for that. Um, and really just the whole business side of things, which is a bit of a trip up. That's my workshop. Well, it was. I'm not there anymore, but it was an old timber drying kiln. And a huge fan they had at the end. They used to stack wood in there and circulate it. But, you know, that's the thing. You find an old industrial space and park up, and it was cheap. Um, so where were you based, Mike? That was Otaki, or Tucky, shall I say. And, um, well, that's where I live now, have done for... That was part of my bailout, mm. was to go somewhere where I could live cheaply, mm. um, sustain myself on a shoestring, which you've got to do, mm. and just put my head down and, and you know, explore wh where, where I could go with it and what I could do with it. How um, do people find out about what Mike Harry does? Well, it would be very... I mean, um, a lot of my exposure 
was really just through the symposium circuit, which I would do one or two every year all around the country. And I was very heavy on fl um, flyer promotion that I would, you know, these things went out by the thousands, which I'd just have a, a little A5 flyer with all the pictures chucked on it and the details, and at every event I ever went near, they were just going. Is that how you got your bites? A lot of them. And then, um, yeah, that's, I mean, even to this day, I haven't given any of those things out probably for five or six years, and the emails still arrive over them. Wow. So that was a great little trick, an inexpensive little colour flyer. And I'm a bit of a talker too, so when the, if I'd get anyone in the vicinity of anything that I was doing, I would just chew the air off them. And <laughs> but you'd, you'll find that, you know, when you go, that interested people who, who, if they like your work, then, you know, I've been very fortunate with about a dozen, maybe six to eight really solid customers that I've got, a lot of whom are on to their third work now. Brilliant. So, you do know, you they, following? they do say that, you know, 20% 20, 20 of your customers are responsible for 80% of your sales, mm -hmm. which is proving out to be quite true through, you know, f friends of... Yeah, it's a great reminder. Things like that. And once someone gets a relationship with you as an artist, which is... A v very different from the gallery experience where they uh, would be buying work that they might not necessarily have an interaction with an artist. Mm. You know, I think people really value that. They can meet you, you can... Because for me, I'm the whole one-stop shop. You know, I'll, I'll meet them, I'll look at their space, I'll do a proposal, we'll make it, I'll install it, done. And, I, you know, a lot of the houses that I end up going to, you know, multi-millions all around the place, I think, how else? Artists can get away with murder, can't they? They can. How else can a scruffy bikey like me get to go and sit at Bazillionaire and just rock up there and they're happy to see you? <laughs> and I made you a cup of tea. Because under any other guys, they'll be calling the police. <laughs> so, you know, that's good like that. Um, and, you know, I think we're, very, we're lucky in New Zealand that, with my experiences overseas, um, you know, those artists over there don't have a domestic market like what we've got. You know, the, the, you've got average mum and dad, middle class New Zealand, buy art. That just doesn't happen in, in a lot of countries. You just don't get that. You know, we've got, they've got the garden. Oh, we want something nice or they'll buy a painting. So, you know, that's very good for us uh, that we get supported like that. Mm. that. Again, that's part of that whole, you know, that I think it's part of us trying to establish identity for ourselves in Aotearoa or that we want to support you, you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's very community This is based. why these iconic images, Kapiti Island or Nikau Palms and things like that, it's why they're so, you know, they're, they're everywhere, aren't they? You know? Indeed. And people will continue to buy them because it's, it's here, isn't it? It's 
really relevant. Really interesting point you've raised. Even love to open up the floor to what people think of that within their own creativity or from what they've heard or their own points of view. Anyone? Lock it in. <laughs> I actually ran into a bit of a daze in that last bit. Can you just repeat it? I've got to mention the idea of culture and identity. And, um... Well, yeah, how, you know, the, how you, when you think about images from New Zealand, there are, you know, there's so many iconic images. And, and it, there's a koru, isn't there? You know? And that these these patterns and shapes are repeated and that we, we, we're gone off again. I'll put one on which is a slideshow of um, something actually getting made, which might be interesting, we haven't seen yet, right? I just wanted to let you know that I went into a daze because it's so exciting what you're saying. Actually, I've you're in a daze. So there's one for the, there's one for the stone carvers, right? Um, yeah, just really the domestic market I'm thinking of. That there's and it, it, that that's a way for you, that you can sort of tap if you. You know, I don't want to get too hung up on the business of art and the sales and stuff like that because it's boring, and it's not why we do it. It's not even relevant. To what we do, you know, we we we're there as artists for ourselves primarily, I suppose, to express ourselves, and, and whatever comes after that is, you know, unfortunate reality in a lot of cases. But I mean, you know, I've come full circle now that I, you know, I, I it's the whole idea of the creativity that, you know, I'd love to say that I'm a prolific artist and a prolific sculptor, but the reality is I'm not. I'm so spread out into so many different things with the, you know, engineering and the stone work and stuff. But the, the difference is now is that I've got a creative outlook mm. on the work. Like, you know, I've come full circle now from something that I was running away from, which was the engineering work, um, when I first came to... Uh, to this glorious institution, was to escape my unhappy life. Mm. Because I really, I was blaming it all on, it's my job, I hate my job, I hate that work. And it really wasn't, I just hated the way I was doing it. So, you know, now, after 15 years, it's really a full circle that now I'm back in the movies for the third time. But, you know, now it's on my terms, pretty much. And I'm, I know, because I've gone back to the engineering and the steel again. Um, but it's just my own personal outlook is so different that, you know, I'm, I'm getting rewards from it that I wouldn't have been able to get previously or that I didn't get previously. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, interesting how it can affect the whole psyche. And how it, like well, it's your whole life, isn't it? It's mm. your whole outlook. I mean, that's why... As artists, you, you are a valuable employee because you've got that ability. I mean, it's like they say, you know, you can teach an artist to do anything, right? But you can't teach everyone to think creatively or artistically. Can you? Yeah. 
it's facilitating an environment where people maybe work it out. Which is why a thing like, say, you know, this rise of this um, the movie industry in Wellington is um, really why it's gone ahead so much in leaps and bounds. Because it's got, you know, there's a hell of a lot of TLC graduates knocking around Stone Street and Weta Digital, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they're all over it. So you've got to think on some, on some level that, sure, a, a film studio could exist anywhere, but that not like that one, because it's here. Hey. Built around the people. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's the creative people that are there and, and it's the, you know, the mindset that... Bit of polishing for everyone. <laughs> hours and hours... Oh, well, that's just rubbing at the moment. Silicon carbide. So there's another thing about, you know, this was a variation on that one that I liked. So I used to love it so much. And, you know, part of part of doing this sort of operation for a living is that people are going to say to you, oh, we really love that one. They'll look back in the previous work. You know, and I'm miles ahead by now. I'm on to other things. But, so that's part of the compromise of trying to sustain yourself financially from your work. And it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but people are going to want, they're going to go back and they're going to say, or we want something like this. Or alternatively, you know, as the artist, you're going to hit on a formula that works or something that goes and sells, and then the danger is that you're going to get stuck there. Mm. You know? And you're just going to have to be building for the market, which is really destructive. So you find that balance of having a, a job which you can go to and call work to complement and work with the art, is that the ideal balance? Um... Well, I suppose it's a very individual thing. You know, for me, the perfect, <coughs> the perfect balance was to, as I did here for many years, was to do about six to eight hours in the workshop, or six hours on the, on the stone every day, mm. and then race home and do motorcycles, which was the given, mm. because it was the balance between all day working in the art was that you were bringing stuff out of nowhere all the time. There's no manual. There's no, you know, one A goes here and B goes there. And so it's all wide open. It's just, well, that's your crea creative process, you know. Um, and I'd get quite lost in that. And so then I would, you know, every day or every night, because I'm sort of quite into engines and mechanics as well, which is the absolute opposite. It's everything's a given. There's a thousandths of an inch tolerance between this part and that part, and it's going to be no other way. So, you know, that was a that was something that I did for a long time. That interesting, yeah, that logic mm. and intuitive. Well, I often working. said in my darkest hours of creativity, like having to repeat myself or go back or think that I was going nowhere or that, that I was, I don't know. I, so I used to be incredibly precious about the work, like you are, you, you just are. You, you, you're really precious, it's got to be perfect, it's going to be 
you know, you have exacting standards, and that's great. You, you have that, um, or else you know you're never going to push yourself. But ultimately, through the end of it all, I did learn to let go a lot, especially of the work itself. I became less precious. Like I never wanted to sell anything at first. I wanted to keep. You know, you just want to keep it. But then it became very quite mercenary. It just became about. I'm going to have to sell this off to fund the next tool that I need to make the next one, you know. And it became all about the, 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 the sculptures then really didn't mean a lot. That, well, they did, obviously, but not in a sentimental way. They didn't, um, uh, they weren't precious to me. They were just not being heartless about it, but, you know, it was all about moving forward and again, doing the next one, which is why I would take the commission work. I had no, well, I had to take commissions, and um, and then I would always keep use that commission money to do something that I wanted to do, you know, to express myself with something that was different and push, keep pushing forward with new things, and then they they would all often, pretty much always turn out to be the successes, because you know you do something random. It was like these gear wheel things, you know. I just had an idea to make that because it was sort of political and I wanted to make a comment about, you know, where are we, what are the fossilised ruins of us, right? What are we doing? Blah, 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 blah. So no one's going to want that. Who's going to want to buy that? You know, it never occurred to me. I just wanted to make it. Yeah. But then, no sooner had I it had gone out there and, well, bam, now I'm in the same boat again. They're all, they're all after it. I've got, you know, there's Ducati ringing up. They want one. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Which was interesting. There was another interesting thing to me there that I began to realise about... Again, we're getting back to the business of art, but I began to realise that there's, like, target markets. There's people that want to buy your work and you really help yourself to know who these people are, you know? So what I discovered by doing those machine parts, because it was always, you know, I'd do these symposiums and I'd sit there and just, you know, make my work and da-da-da. And often the, the guy would, would come to my, you know, be a husband and wife team. They're out to buy something for the garden. And often the wife would, you know, the husband would come along. Wow, this is amazing. Look, oh, Fibonacci, look. It's all mathematical and perfect. Oh, we love it. And then the wife would come over. Da, I saw this beautiful koru over there, darling. You see? Yeah, yeah. And often it's the missus that's pulling the purse strings. <laughs> so, you know, my sales time and time again were disappearing across the park to something that was flowery and nice and not hard-edged and just not what I was doing. Um, so I sort of began to realise that, well, you know, how do you, what do you do there? Do you join the, the status quo and make the flowery round nice stuff just because you need to get paid? Or do you... And it all happened by accident, of course. Once I started to aggressively make very manly stuff, because I'm a man, but, you, well, you know, once I made very masculine works, um, I attracted these very high-powered guys which are the perfect customer because they're CEOs and they're entrepreneurs and they're, these are the guys. Mm. So I'd, I'd, inadvertently I'd hit the right product for the guys that have got the money that are just like 
you know. And these are the guys that, you know, the, what I'd experienced previously was the wife dragging the husband along. And now these guys didn't seem to have wives. They had maybe attractive personal assistants. <laughs> you know. Which is interesting, yeah, you know. Just. Yeah, the different dynamics. So once I could identify that that was a bit of a market for me, um, then it became very easy because it was like, well, you can just direct market. Again, you're saying, because I do a lot of this, I'm straight to Fletcher's, I'm straight to some trucking company for the foyer. You know, I go, have I got a piece? Here's a deal for you. Blam, blam, blam. And See I, where you're at, best and suits. I, I really like to have control of my own destiny. I don't... I know there's various schools of thought about, you know, involving galleries, but I've just never done it. Mm. And this may hurt me professionally, but it just means that I've got to plough along extra hard myself, you know? Some people have managers, some work independently. It's whatever works for each mm. individual, I guess. Mm. Just opening up the floor, I guess, to, for asking questions to Mike about what you've seen, what you've heard. Uh, this is something that's going back on the whole business side of things, but there's a shop on Cuba Street and it sells, you know, heaps of Kiwi owls, Kiwi and stuff, you know, it's got the sort of wooden, you know, cutouts and it's it's laser cut all the birds yeah. and trees and stuff and you put it together. Yeah. And I'd say, you know, it's one of the biggest art shops on Cuba Street that makes the most money. Yet it's the most sort of I mean, it's creative, but it's just massive. It's kind of iconic, cheap. Yeah, like yeah, just, yeah, and they sell it for big, but I don't know, do you think that's always going to be like, because it seems that that sort of style and that way you know, of your value and has been around for a long time, but... Sure, there's, there's always going to be that knockout stuff. There's always going to be um, our iconic stuff coming back in plastic from China or um, whatever, or fake, or, you know, there's... Uh, you know, something masquerading as bone or, you know, you, you, that's, that's just commerce. You can't, you, you can't really, you, your point of difference is your uniqueness. Yeah. And the point of difference and the value is that um, nobody else has got one. Nobody else is going to get this one. This is the only one there is. So there's the value. Yeah. It's not that I'm, I'm making 200 of this same, even if they're kind of similar. Like, you know, I hate doing it. Like, uh, say for here, I've, you've just had to reorganise the, the direction of the work. I'm not saying you can't do that, because every piece in itself is going to, if it's handmade by you, it's going to be unique. So there's, you can go along on a theme of work, but, you know, each one's going to be, and that's where the value lies, you know. I mean, I know what you're saying. It's very difficult as a creative to, to, to do this, get this solid somehow stream of money. And believe me, we've done it all. We've do, talked about making moulds for garden centres and you name it, tuning out. You know, I used to pay my rent in my workshop previously. I was in a big collective studio with artists. And because I had to meet rent, I needed... I needed a sure thing, a sure seller, so I'd start to make these hanging pendant things out of uh, Omaru stone, which were very quick to knock up. And my girlfriend at the time did a bit of weaving, and she'd put them on hanging things, and they were a cheap 
fang item which were... And I've no doubt that the people that have them that bought them love them. So there was room for that. Like, I didn't have to charge a fortune for those. I could knock them out quickly. Do you know what I mean? I'd, I'd dedicate... To pay my rent, I would have to dedicate, you know, half a day a week to making them, and I could sort of turn out three or four, jing, 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 jing. Yeah, so there's that, you know. Um, I think it's easy when you're idealistic and you're an art student that you want to, every work has to change the world and... You know what I mean. You, that's great ideal that, you know, I'm going to be the greatest. I mean, this is, and you, by all means, go for that because otherwise, you know, you aim high, you know, you've got to aim high. But I think you've got to be, you can be realistic about it as well, you know. And, and hey, if you can make shit, if you can make your stuff a bit more efficiently and be able to make it and produce something a little bit cheaper, then ultimately it's probably not a bad thing that a lot of people get to share it, right? But I'm not in for the laser cutting arrangement though. I think it's a bit soulless. I think any machine made, I'm a bit at odds with machine making art. I think it needs the hands-on, it needs hands on it. Yeah. And not necessarily your own necessarily either, like you know, it doesn't have to be that a lot of people have a problem with an artist delegating. Um, I've loosened up on that a little bit. <laughs> I don't delegate, by the way, but I just, you know, I just think, you know, if you wanted to make something in aluminium or if you wanted to make, if your vision dictates stainless steel, I'm not expecting you to go and do it sheet metal apprenticeship to learn how to do that. You can, do you know what I'm saying? This is where networking is great too, of course. Yeah, hello. Um, what kind of stone do you work with mostly now and where do you get it from? <laughs> oh, well, m most of these that you see is um, uh, from Taranaki, Andesite, from the mountain. Um, for two very good reasons. It's, it's, for a lot of very good reasons, in fact, it's readily available. In, in big sizes, it's consistent, um, which is a lot of stone in New Zealand is not because we're not um, overly endowed with good big scale carving rocks here. Anything we have got, they are quarrying for fertilisers and stuff, so they use a lot of explosives. All the marbles, it's hard to get a good chunk of marble now that's not cracked and fractured. So that, the andesite's consistent and it's cheap. And where do, you, where do you get it from? Like just All Taranaki. Oh, quarries. Just go to a quarry. Yeah, I just, I've got a truck. I've got a, my own high truck. Yeah, yeah. So um, usually the quarries will allow you just to rock in. I mean, I can fill up two tonne of rock for a, um, a box of beers. Yeah. And do you, do you mostly um, do carving with the machines? Or with yeah, all power tools. All power tools, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, obviously, as you'll see in the, with the making of, there's hand tools for removing and a lot of rubbing that goes on with stone yeah. that's the hand kind of element yeah. of it but you really you, you, you can't do a lot with it with hand by hand is it quite hard yeah oh, it's tough as old boots you need um you need all the grinders and oh, 
Yeah. And to be realistic, to get the things turned out in time, I mean, even with the aid of massive concrete cutters and polishing equipment, you know, you're still looking at, oh, probably 250 hours work. And that's doing it as quick as I can. And that's on a, that, that's on a known formula for me. So that's like super, doing it super fast. There's no mucking about figuring out, well, what does this bit look like? It's just bam, 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 bam. It's, it, it, it's really hyper-efficient doing it efficiently. But it's still going to take you months to make that. You know, so you've got to get, you've got to be able to keep it realistic. You want to be paying yourself, again, here we go with the money, but you want to be able to pay yourself a reasonable rate. And I keep track of all, you know, I keep track of every hour I spend on every piece I spend. And I have to know, I have to sort of be able to make my best guesstimate before I go in and quote it, that I'm not going to rip myself off that I'm going to be able to get paid what my rate is, you know. Yeah, thanks. Right, just getting back to her question. I thought we had a mountain. <laughs> no, no, seriously, um... <laughs> you can edit that, buddy. Seriously, I think what we've heard today is, is the act that everybody else goes through um, pursuing this thing called art. And I hope collectively the group, because I'm just wanting the group to take away a lot more than just your photos. But it's been um, it's been pretty cool um, sitting back here listening. All right, thanks, Tess. I mean, I can't emphasise enough just how, you know, what a major turnaround that was in my life. You know, and congratulations to you all, well done for taking the step. Because you've all come from, you know, you all come from your own past and we all look out our own windows, right? So, but you've taken a step to come in and be here now, and that's the first step now. Like I remember when I took it, I would never have imagined where it was gonna go. It's amazing, you know, the opportunities that have opened up, and that's as much about me being having my little perspectives shifted around a little bit, you know. Um, just with your knowledge of what's going on in the industry, do you find that the artists that just keep plugging away and trying different ways to market tend to make it through? Or do you have you seen um, well, of course, people way, fall regardless? Oh, have I seen them? I'd like give it up or yeah. it's just too hard. Yeah. Yeah, you see, you do see, uh, you do see a lot of people throwing it to the side. You know, give it, throwing it away. And the ones that, like yourself, that just keep trying, keep trying yeah. different things, is there like a higher yeah. percentage? Well, I think you, you you can you can hold a high expectation of yourself. Where are we now? Oh, you can hold a very high expectation of yourself to have whatever you think success is, you know. But really the success should be that whatever you're going to endeavour, you know, the circumstances of your life change. So it's not always going to be practical to be... <laughs> it's not always going to be practical to be carving 10-tonne chunks of rock, you know. Um, so... It must be like an outlay to 
too light in terms of truck, crane. Yeah, but you, well, yes, but I mean, you, you know, there's other things like your life moves on. You, you know, you, things are going to happen. You're at a point now where it's cool, you're able to be at school and you're able to be creative and express yourself. But, you know, the, I think the, the lesson there is that you, you've got to be able to take the, what your creativity is with you in whatever you do. And that, yeah, back to your question about m- making it. Um, it's, yeah, certainly you've got to be persistent. I think it's so much of it about hard work and um, yeah, spotting your opportunities and having a sprinkling of luck, maybe timing wise or networking, or which is great when you're here, you know, and and pushing yourself and looking for, and still staying excited about it as well, and not making it boring for yourself, like keep, you know, churning it up, and I get very excited about processes, you know, what's a new technology that I can use, and how can I use that? Yeah, it's a a shame, you do see people... um, getting very despondent and packing it in, but... In any industry like you mentioned before? Uh, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I have a fear around doing large works because where the hell am I going to put it? Mm. Did you have that same fear and, and how did you get over it? The fear for me was... Well, it wasn't a fear, it was just a major inconvenience is... Um, um, actually doing the large work because they weigh tons so I'd had to come over with um, you know using tripods and lifting equipment and stuff like that and the expense of moving them around and the hassle of moving them um, really I'll tell you what I do now is when I've got work that's big scale and I'm looking for a buyer or it's that I've created it and usually it's destined for some show somewhere but it might remain unsold after the show so I get into just approaching people with spaces that I like building owners, Wellington City Council have kind of been alright with me over the years Um, they've recently let me abandon something in the St James foyer for 8 months so you know that was kind of good yeah the, the big work My fears about it is making them safe, having them that you can walk away from a large work, especially a stone work, so it's not precarious, nobody's going to get hurt. That if, if works are going into the public sphere, then you've got to imagine like a six-year-old climbing all over it, and you're designed to that. Um, yeah, like, you know, I like now with this, it seems to be happening in Wellington with the pop-up shops, or if that's, I'm thinking of the wrong thing, but now on Lincoln Key, you know, there's this art thing going forward where they're using empty spaces to do installations on the street. So, you know, I remember that being talked about in, a very, in one of these very classes 12 years ago, 13 years ago. So, but now it seems to be quite the norm. Whereas, you know, then it, it seemed like, well, you know, that would be 
So that's sort of the thing. Um, you know, I think there should be room to more so with that, with people like councils and stuff. Of course, they run a mile because of liabilities, and, you know, and things like that. They're a bit of a nightmare to deal with. But, you know, if you were making large stone sculptural works, um, it would seem nice. Like in New Plymouth, they do it no problem. You know, all along the foreshore, uh, you can you can just you know, by arrangement, just install a large sculpture there. You can put a for sale sign on it. It's becoming sort of, you know, synonymous with the waterfront walkthrough. So, yeah, I think just be, don't be shy about going and hitting people up. If cafes, perfect. I mean, you do it with paintings. If there's a garden bar or whatnot, you know, if there's a... Oh, large paintings. Yeah, so good to get your take on that. Yeah. Oh, I'd be, I'd be hitting up foyers of hotels, airport lounges, you name it. That's what I do. Yeah, I think the airport lounges are awesome. Honest, don't use, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you, and hotel, hotel foyer, especially for the kind of thing if you... Oh, Fibonacci again. Great, isn't it? Yeah. Love it. Oh, you're running out of time. Oh, gone over, but it's fantastic. It's awesome to hear what you've had to say. Thanks, thanks for coming in. Oh. Oh. <laughs> that was easy, wasn't it? <laughs> Quite easy. Got any flowers? No. <laughs> I do not.